Today we start not with our big theme, but with a small story. Don't get lost in the details. Something special happens when you confuse things small and things large. When our explanations suddenly become our questions. Just a few weeks before recording this, SpaceX launched the Falcon Heavy to much fanfare. It was the company's largest spacefaring vessel, the biggest in history for a private company. Six, five, four, three, two, it was a momentous event, one that brought back the exhilarating, inspiring, and awesome potentials of space exploration. In addition, it was an awesome display of precision engineering and design. Some of our older listeners might remember sharing a similar enthusiasm for the launch of NASA missions, the Space Shuttle, the Apollo program, or back in 1990, the much-anticipated launch of the Hubble Space Telescope. The telescope was a huge investment, costing over $2.5 billion and spending over 12 years in research, design, construction, and development. Employing some of the most advanced optical technology of its day, hopes were high that this device would let us see with unprecedented clarity into the heavens. After its successful release off the back of the space shuttle Discovery, it seemed as if the high hopes for the telescope would be realized. That is, until the first of its images began to arrive back on Earth. And I got a call uh, from uh, the project scientist who said, hey, uh, you better come in. You know, uh, it, we've got, the problem is real, it's beyond our ability to fix it, and we've got to go public with it. There's a significant spherical aberration appears to be present in the optics, in the, in the optical telescope system optics. The mistake was a fiasco, turning NASA and the Hubble teams into the butt of jokes, a punchline for magazine comics, and the then-popular Naked Gun films. For a while, it seemed as if the telescope would be a multi-billion dollar white elephant, a tarnish on the space agency's sleeve. Reporters looking at the first pictures were incredulous. What might have made this happen? What are the possible things that could have happened to Struggling to diagnose the issue, Hubble's program scientists quickly isolated the problem to the telescope's primary mirror, a key component that allowed the satellite to focus its images. This was astonishing given the amount of time and energy that had gone into the mirror's precision engineering. Made from a huge chunk of glass that weighed nearly a ton, the mirror was polished and given its precise concave shape with a specially designed computer-driven tool, a tool supposedly accurate to a millionth of an inch. The manufacturing of the primary mirror was itself an intense labor, with cycles of polishing and shaping lasting days at a time. All of the testing had to be done at night, a senior engineer recalled, because cars as far away as three or four miles on the highway would still produce too much vibration in the test chambers. The levels of sensitivity, in other words, were second to none. So how could such an accurate and precise process end up failing so catastrophically? Two months following Hubble's launch, an intensive investigation was undertaken to better understand the problem's origins. The investigators found that the null corrector, a testing device used to achieve the proper shape for the primary mirror during its production, had been misaligned. And the misalignment was caused by a tiny chipping of paint. A key component of the null corrector, a focusing rod, was originally covered with a non-reflective material. But this material had scratched and chipped away during its installation leaving behind a reflective spot where there shouldn't have been one. The reflection off this surface made it so that the system's alignment laser misread the centering of the bar. 
With the tiny chip, the alignment was off by 1.3 millimeters, an error that cascaded down from the corrective system directly to the shaping and the polishing of the primary mirror. Can you imagine their frustration? After all that work, it turns out that the primary mirror was actually ground and polished extremely precisely. But because of this misalignment in the guidance system above it, it was just produced to the wrong shape. The resulting error in the primary mirror meant it ended up being about 4 microns too flat at the edges. That's roughly equal to 1 50th the thickness of a human hair. But in optical terms, even 4 microns is more than enough to cause major problems. For the Hubble, the microscopic difference was catastrophic, introducing major distortions in the first images coming back from the telescope. The story of how NASA engineers ended up fixing the optical system of the Hubble is fascinating in its own right. It was an ingeniously designed and installed corrective lensing system, called COSTAR, that basically gave Hubble prescription glasses. After its correction, during an extensively planned 1993 repair mission, the Hubble began sending back some of the most profound and memorable images of deep space, repairing not only its reflective mirror, but its reputation and its potential to let us see into the eternal beyond. The story of the Hubble fiasco is, I think, a great story about scale. Like many space missions, it is about huge investments and high hopes that are founded on microscopic measurements and precision at the level of the nanometer. Hubble's mirror failure and its subsequent repair is a story of how small errors, measurements, and corrections can cascade, causing entire systems to fail and sometimes unpredictably succeed. But scale and scales are about more than sheer size or magnitude, more than a question of what is small or large. Scale is about layers and textures. It is at the cusp of the singular and the multiple, parts and wholes. Scale holds a line between the simple and the complex. It asks what we mean when we describe relationships between things, both when those things are constant and when they are in the midst of change. Scale is built into our language. Think of the metaphor, the act of holding two separate things together and understanding them through their relationship. The notion of scale is everywhere, from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids to the nuclear bomb, from musical scales to scales on snakes and lizards, from colonies of ants to our immune systems, from business and infrastructure to minerals and mountains. It makes us ask not only what is the relationship between these two individual things, but also what does it mean for things to be related in the first place? We hope that the collection of stories in today's episode allows us to experience a feeling of scale, of finding an emergent something beyond the sum of individual parts, and exploring unexpected relationships between the one and the many. In our first segment, we turn to crowds of animals and the behaviors exhibited by animals in groups. What is it about the swarm that can be at once beautiful and terrifying? What does it tell us about scale? In our next segment, we go back to ancient history, looking at the origins for understanding musical scales, of thinking about cosmic harmony, and what happens when one thinks with scales, at scale. In our third segment, we look at a surprising and unexpected history of the meter as a measurement standard. Following a seven-year journey of two Enlightenment-era French scientists, we see that establishing the metric was a long and daunting adventure that intersected with revolution, war, disease, and even imprisonment. Coming up to the surface, I'm Rod Fadak, and you're peering through the periscope.
Today, we're talking about scales. It's 2010, and two young British women are in Ireland working on a film project. After they take a break from filming, the pair set out in a canoe on an adventure. Their goal is to reach an island they had heard rumors about, with a ruined church on it. But the island they find is not the one they plan to visit. Instead of a church, this one is covered in a carpet of one-inch thick bird droppings. As they decide to leave, a few birds appear in the sky. Just a few at first, they recall, flying low over the treetops. But soon enough, they start to fill the sky to the horizon, a black cloud of them, swooping and whipping by in great undulating movements, a sudden and unexpected display. But any fright from the birds is quickly displaced by wonder and awe. They rise and fall, each one catching onto the same poem until they are all one great crescendo. The performance peaks, and it takes their breath away. If you listen closely to the raw audio there, you can actually hear the sound of the flock swooping by the boat. It's the sound of thousands of starlings in formation, dancing in the sky, a spontaneous formation that is called a murmuration. It felt like they collectively decided to play with us, Sophie recalls, in both a joyful and a territorial way. Sharing their video on the internet, it quickly goes viral, now with over 10 million views on YouTube, the fleeting moment has been preserved in the memories of the masses. Nobody knows exactly why these murmurations form, but an extensive amount of research has been done on how they shape themselves into these striking groups. Researchers have been looking for patterns in their movement, tracking what kinds of individual behaviors the starlings undertake that contribute to the poetic motions of the group. It turns out, biologists and physicists approach and understand swarms and collective motion differently. Birds, crowds, and particle clouds don't always follow the same rules of behavior. But everyone seems to be in agreement that underlying complex movements are actually collections of fairly simple individual behaviors. In the case of starlings, Italian researchers have figured out that the birds tend to interact with only six or seven of their immediate neighbors, following pretty simple rules of movement to produce these poetic patterns of flight. In this way, the murmuration is a great example of a complex system, a beautiful formation emerging from a collection of self-organizing individuals, individuals that become something other than themselves. This is the cool thing about these complex systems. They're often made up of simple rules and behaviors, just brought together at scale. Again, with murmurations, if you put a bunch of simple behaviors together, you'll likely get something beyond the sum of those parts, a complex collective group dynamic. But the murmuration in all its poetic beauty is still unique. 
We can't assume that it's just like all other flocks, or even other gatherings of animals or people. It turns out that the coordination of the starlings' behaviors doesn't change linearly with scale. Think of the game of telephone for a minute, where one person whispers a message to their neighbor, and that neighbor whispers the same message to their neighbor, and so on, until you arrive at the final person, who almost inevitably repeats back a terrifically garbled version of the original message. Okay, I can tell that was different already. What? <laughs> you heard it. Also, the sentence no, was know. too long. I forget the first half. Yeah, you don't have to try to mess it up. See. This information loss, this distortion, gets worse as the chain gets longer. Someone mishears their neighbor, someone intentionally garbles the words, someone forgets what they heard. <laughs> There's no way that's the same thing that you told. The game is essentially a demonstration of how scale matters in groups. Information is progressively lost as the length of the chain increases. Starlings, on the other hand, defy the expectations of this game. The same Italian researchers believe that starling murmurations, like the one that these women witnessed, are actually a demonstration of what they call scale-free correlation. This means that the correlations between individual behaviors of each starling, the rules that they are following, are held constant across the whole group, no matter how big its size. The effective perception range of each individual bird, write the scientists, can be as large as the entire group, and it becomes possible to transfer undampened information to all animals, no matter their distance, making the group respond as one. The group, they continue, cannot be divided into independent subparts, because the behavioral change of one individual influences and is influenced by the behavioral change of all the other individuals in the group. Scale-free correlations imply that the group is, in a strict sense, different from and more than the sum of its parts. The poetry of the murmuration, then, is that it exemplifies the beauty of scale at the same time that it defies our assumptions about it. It is an unchoreographed dance of almost perfect unity. It is the one and the many at the same time. As Andrew King and David Sumter remark, an evening murmuration is more than just the dance of starlings. It is a glimpse into one of the fundamental motions of life. Starling murmurations can move us to awe with their dance-like motion and through their scale-free collective movement. But what if swarming could do more than produce changes in just behavior? As it were, a starling in the murmuration is still a starling, just behaving slightly differently. But what if amassing together as a group actually changed the animal itself into something completely different? Swarming, it turns out, can change the very type of animal we can become. It is in fact what differentiates certain kind of grasshoppers from what we know as locusts. On the one hand, you have the unassuming, solitary, field-dwelling insect. And on the other, 
the biblical, swarming, plague-bringing menace, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. But in many cases, these are the same animal, sharing the same DNA and the same taxonomies. So what differentiates them? You guessed it, it's the swarm. It turns out these capricious insects exist in two extreme guises of themselves. The entomologists call these different states phases. So grasshoppers are in a solitary, docile phase. You've seen this one before. Think of the innocuous brown field grasshopper hopping off the wheat stalk as you approach. The other extreme is a form you probably and hopefully haven't seen. It's called the gregarious phase. Think bright yellow bodies, think darkened skies, raucous rioting, locusts, chittering and swarming by the billions, devouring their own body weight in food every day. The shift between the solitary grasshopper and the gregarious locust is a fascinating example of how scale can change not only just the behavior of the insect, but its phenotypical expression, its actual appearance. With grasshoppers and locusts, they call this shift density-dependent phase polyphenism, or if you want, phenotypic plasticity. It's fancy language to say that the very physical expression of the animal changes when it joins and forms its rabid group. When it joins the horde, the grasshopper almost literally hulks out. In the swarm, everything about it changes. Its morphology, its anatomy, its coloration, its development cycles, its reproductive behaviors, its physiology, its biochemistry, its pheromones, even its taste in food. Where grasshoppers avoid bitter-tasting plants, locusts actively seek them out to make themselves distasteful to their predators. The very foundation of the insect changes once it becomes collective, once it exists at scale. And the scale of the swarm can be immense. During massive plagues, desert locusts can appear over a land area of nearly 12 million square miles, or 30 million square kilometers, comprising over nearly 20% of Earth's land surface. During their infestations, they can cause hundreds of millions of dollars in damage to crops, livestock, and farmland. Swarming and emergent collective behavior can strike us with wonder, like the benign murmurations of the starlings, but sometimes they inspire that visceral fear. Imagine the feeling of being stuck in the midst of a throbbing, pulsating crowd, or worse yet, finding yourself wrapped up in that mob mentality. Individuals at scale are awesome, in the literal sense of the word. Mysterious, mesmerizing, and terrifying all at once. Groups embody the mysteries of scale, showing us how a mass of simple behaviors can become something indescribably complex. How our relationships to one another can actually change not only the way we think and act, but the very premise of our existence itself. Next time you're in the crowd, ask yourself, are we starlings or are we locusts? For this next segment, we're doing a deep cut. We're going way back, 
Back to when anecdotes are probably just as much collective imagination as they are established facts. But let's roll with that and take a look at the origins of the scale in music and start thinking with scales at scale. Our protagonist here is Pythagoras. Yeah, the same fabled Greek whose theorem you studied to find the longest side of the triangle. When he wasn't busy thinking about geometry or meditating in a cave, he apparently enjoyed walks across town. Legend has it that during one of his strolls, he passed by a blacksmith's shop, where he was struck, figuratively, by the sounds of the hammers, clanging as they shaped a piece of metal on an anvil. His ear was caught by their harmony, by the pleasant sound of the resonance as they rang at different pitches. But why, he wondered, was there this difference in sound between hammers? And why were some of the sounds pleasant when put together, while others dissonant? After some experimentation, he noticed that the difference in sound could be accounted for not by the force of the strokes, but from the various sizes of the hammers, and the pleasing harmonic resonances between them must have been due to the relationships between those sizes. To experiment with these relationships further, he built himself an instrument called a monochord, which is basically a box with a string held taut across it. The weight on the end of the string held it in tension, creating a specific frequency and pitch when it was plucked. Pythagoras noticed two things about the pitches produced by his vibrating strings. First, that a string that was half the length of another, but with the same tension and thickness, sounded similar, just at a higher or lower register. The same effect was produced by holding the string down exactly at its center point and plucking it. Each half of the string sounded exactly the same note, just higher than when the string was struck at its full length. What he had found was what is today called the octave, notes with twice or half the frequency of vibration of the other, keys with the same name on the keyboard. This ratio of 2 to 1 and the octave it produces was thus the starting point for Pythagoras's mathematical understanding of pitch, harmony, and scale. But he also noticed that holding a string down at one-third of its length would produce two notes that also sounded pleasant together. Musicians call this interval between these two notes a perfect fifth. Like the 2 to 1 ratio that formed the octave, this ratio of 3 to 2 formed the backbone of harmony for Pythagoras and the Greek musicians at the time. The perfect fifth is everywhere in music, even today. I bet you can imagine it without even hearing it played. If you sing the children's song Ba Ba Black Sheep, for instance, the first Ba and Black are a fifth apart. Or if you think about the opening theme from Star Wars, the first notes of that are a fifth apart as well. Uncovering the ratios that formed both octaves, 2 to 1, and perfect fifths, 3 to 2, was a revelation for Pythagoras and the musical customs of the era. From these two intervals, one could construct not only a mathematically consistent tuning between instruments, but a plethora of scales. What we know today as the Pythagorean scale is based exclusively on these ratios of 2 to 1, octaves, 3 to 2, fifths, as well as a ratio of 4 to 3, a perfect fourth, which is also an important interval for the Greeks. 
The octave, as well as perfect fourths and fifths, are still some of the most important intervals in music. They form the foundation of much of harmonic and melodic theory, even today. But the pre-Renaissance musical ear got used to octaves and fifths at the expense of other intervals, like thirds, which ended up sounding dissonant when using the Pythagorean ratios to scale and tune. As England in the 15th and 16th centuries became more and more fixated on the interval of the third, it meant that the principles of Pythagoras's harmonic system fell into disfavor, especially across the European continent. Listen here for the sudden appearance of the third, as it inflects English composer John Dunstaple's choral composition from the turn of the 15th century. Nevertheless, the Pythagorean influence on music, on scales, and on tuning was profound and long-lasting. These ratios and harmonics formed the backbone of scales for nearly 2,000 years, even through and past the 15th century. It is important to note that Pythagoras didn't invent the Pythagorean scale. He just codified it mathematically. Greek musicians were already using these intervals as the basis of their musical tuning and scales because they sounded pleasing. Pythagoras's discovery and the power of his experiment was to figure that this sonic pleasure, the fundamentals of harmony and melody, could be explained as a simple mathematical ratio between lengths of string and the frequencies of their vibrations. Now this was what he truly believed was the power of his discovery, a discovery about the foundations of divinity in nature as it was expressed both sonically and mathematically through harmonic ratios. What he had found, he believed, was the basis for a hidden music, a music not just of earthly instruments, but of the heavenly celestial bodies. His effort, in other words, was not to refine music, but instead to better understand, quote, the sublime symphonies of the world. This was the basis of what is today known as the music of the spheres. For Pythagoras, these ratios were not just about musical harmonics, but rather the divine harmonics of the cosmos. As a philosophical concept, the idea of the music of the spheres held that celestial bodies such as the sun, the moon, and the planets moved around the cosmos in specific proportions, thus creating a form of music, seen as the mathematical outcome of their heavenly interrelations. Now this requires a little bit of explaining because it's a bit strange, but the Greeks thought that like objects in the world, planets will produce various pitches as they revolve and move. And through the relations and ratios of these motions, their relationships to one another, the heavenly bodies would produce a cosmic harmony, a kind of divine music. The relationships between pitch and harmony in music, thought Pythagoras, are thus an instantiation of a larger truth a cosmic harmony in the ratios of planetary motions and vibrations. Like a string vibrating harmonically with another string, the planet's sounds vary according to their rates of motion and the ratios between those frequencies. So, as the thinking goes, you should find similar ratios in the orbital frequencies of the planets, just as you would find them in the ratios that produce harmony in music and the instruments. This was the main thrust of Pythagoras' discovery. It was a scale writ large, the foundation for an understanding of divine harmonics, a kind of cosmic music expressed and understood only in the language of mathematics. Music and scales were thus understood as a reflection 
and as an instantiation of the harmonic relationships and intervals that held together the cosmos. Nature was number, and cosmos was music. The music of the spheres may sound particularly exotic by our standards today, tinged as it is with the foreign feeling of ancient things. And certainly, it isn't quite an accurate way to describe and understand the solar system, if at the very least because it relies on a geocentric model of it. But it still delights even if it doesn't describe. With scales and across them, it embraces a wondrous parsimony and a majestic sense of cosmic harmony. Most importantly, the music of the spheres was truly a philosophy of and about scales, and its hold on thought was long and durable, forming the basis of astronomical study for centuries. It ran its course all the way through Johannes Kepler, a key figure of the 17th century scientific revolution, and an astronomer whose laws of planetary motion changed the way we thought about the heavenly bodies and their orbits. Although Kepler's principles of cosmic harmony diverged from the Pythagorean dogma, one can see the power of this idea, equally as powerful in the 17th century as it was all the way back in the 2nd century BCE. I think there is something beautifully cosmic about harmony in music, even if it doesn't help us describe the relationships between the planets around us. So I can see why the idea captured our imaginations for so many centuries. Even if I don't believe it, I still want to. And I'm not alone, it seems. Even though the concept is not empirically useful for astronomy today, artists and astronomers are still inspired by exploring the musicality of the outer heavens. Music, in other words, continues to help us express the complex relationships between the harmony, the phases, and the relationships between the planetary bodies, their sizes, their speeds, and their resonances. Mike Oldfield, a composer whose work you might recognize from the theme to The Exorcist, produced an album in 2008 simply called Music of the Spheres. In the early 20th century, English composer Gustav Holst wrote a now-famous orchestral suite, The Planets, a suite that plays brilliant thematic homage to each planet across our solar system. A 2012 work by composer Michael Harrison called Just Ancient Loops relies on recreations of the orbits of Jupiter's moons for its cascading and layered loops of cello lines. More recently, Manchester-based sound artist and sociomusicologist Liam Maloney used the music of the spheres as a basis for a meditation on planetary rhythms and patterns. Starting with Galileo's observation of Neptune in 1612, Maloney's composition compresses each Earth year of the solar system's movement into a single minute. A piano tone marks the Earth's cycling through the seasons. Mars announces its 687-day orbit with a call from a trumpet. Saturn inspires percussion as it traverses the sky in its 30-year arc. We're actually listening to Maloney's composition now. It is a meditative 24 minutes of music, a piece that wraps its listeners in a complex web of cosmic harmony. At the intersections of astronomy, art, and music, the music of the spheres helps us keep in mind that the deep void of space while physically absent of sound, doesn't necessarily have to be a silent place. I think the real power of an idea like the music of the spheres is to both embody and to express a complex and often ineffable concept like scale. That it actually uses musical scale to do this adds to its splendor. 
Whether it was the ancient Greeks hearing divinity expressed in the relationships between notes, or today hearing these musicians' meditations on the cosmos, we're able to feel and intuit something that otherwise remains elusive, complex. The stars, the planets, the heavenly bodies, their rotations, scales, and scale. All of this changes the way I think about hearing the simple melodic line, or the complex chord. As if there's a residue not only of history in each of these notes, but something of the cosmos themselves. It was the end of the 18th century, the European continent trembling with revolution and war. The French monarchy had been dismantled, the Bastille stormed, and a new citizenry was busy changing the meaning of what it was to be both a nation and a state. A dark underbelly of change hung over Europe. A revolutionary terror and a drive for continental conquest was on the horizon. But not all revolutionary politics was about war, conquest, and terror. Some of it was about smaller things. Things about a stride length long. The revolution, it turns out, was just as interested in changing the means by which the world would be divided up as it was with how it might be conquered. At stake was the basis of measurement. This was the story of the standardization of the meter. And nowhere is the story told better than in historian Ken Alder's 2001 book, The Measure of All Things. Alder's book is a sweeping, magisterial retelling of the establishment of the metric standard. As Alder's story goes, at the time of the revolution, the French territories were utilizing over 250,000 separate measures. Nearly each tradable good or product had its own scale, its own metric, metrics which were often localized to one specific town or municipality. There was, in other words, no common basis for exchange. As part of its general upending, the revolutionary government wanted to rationalize and nationalize metrics, to establish a new base of economics, not a bunch of localized marketplaces, but a basis for a singular market. As part of this Enlightenment utopianism, the revolutionary government sought to standardize a metric system, this system was a first step toward achieving a new universal language for objects of the material world. This, they believed, would be the basis for common exchange and trade across the new French nation. These standard measures, the meter included, would, in their words, quote, encompass nothing that was arbitrary, nor to the particular advantage of any people on the planet. But in times of such great upheaval, what on earth could possibly be so timeless, so stable, so unified, as to be the grounds for such a universal standard? Well, none other than the Earth itself. The French Academy of Sciences, tasked with founding this universal meter, looked to what they believe was the most fundamental of physical objects. It was right under their feet. It was our very planet. Or at least one specific part of the planet. Namely, the arc of a meridian which ran from a northern French town of Dunkirk straight through Paris down to the Catalan city of Barcelona in Spain. 
Measuring this distance with exacting precision would allow scientists to then calculate, through extrapolation, the entire distance from the equator to the North Pole. And from that, the meter would be set to 1 10 millionth the distance between those two points. I hope the irony isn't lost here, that this universal measure founded on, quote, nothing arbitrary, would in fact be based on an arbitrary fraction of the distance between the North Pole and the equator. All ironies aside, many of our conventions are, just that, fairly arbitrary. In this case, the portion of the meridian running between Dunkirk and Barcelona was chosen largely because it was actually measurable and accessible to a French expedition. Thus it was that in spring 1791, the French Academy of Sciences confided this meridian measurement mission to two of its most prominent astronomers, Jean-Baptiste Delambre and Pierre-François Machin. By summer the next year, 1792, the two eminent French scientists had set out in opposite directions from Paris, with the mission to measure the world, or at least that very specific part of it. Their respective journeys would take over seven years' time, and is an epic saga retold best by Alder himself. Alder's book offers a comprehensive recounting of their journeys, compiling the thousands of meticulous notes these men took as they climbed church steeples and observatories, peering through their instruments to triangulate small sections of map. Carrying their expensive surveying equipment through the cities and the countrysides, they faced angry mobs who fingered them as spies and defectors. They were forced to publicly present decrees signed by an already deposed king, casting their legitimacy in deep doubt. They were repeatedly imprisoned and threatened with execution. Pierre-Francois Machin, who led the southern expedition into Spain, faced even more difficulties. With France and Spain suddenly at war with one another, Michin's scientific mission was tolerated, but only with the deepest levels of military and political scrutiny. Nevertheless, he was persistent in his efforts to triangulate and measure, jumping from point to point. Following a Herculean effort to measure the meridian's mountainous sections in the Catalonian areas around Barcelona, Michin duly sent off his provisional measurements to Paris. As if war and mountainous measurements weren't trying enough, Shortly after his dispatch, he suffered a freak accident, getting clobbered by an errant piece of machinery on a tour of a local pumping station. He was in a coma for over three days, his ribs crushed, his collarbone broken. During his convalescence, he learned that the escalating war between the new French government and Spain meant he would be detained by Spanish forces and unable to return to continue his measurements in southern France. Confined for two months, with plenty of time to think over his work, there was something in his older measurements that began to nag him. As the war's tensions waned and Michin recovered, he set about remeasuring his arcs. Imagine, then, his horror when he found a major deviation, an anomaly of horrific proportions, resulting in nearly 400 feet of deviation from his previous measurements. Measurements and readings he had already dispatched to Paris, ones by which the standard of the meter would be forged. Racked by this shame, and knowing his dispatches would never reach Paris in time to fully rectify the errors, Michin decided to keep the second set of calculations a secret. It was a tragedy of errors for Michin, whose life's mission and entire reputation was founded on precision in measurement. For him, the measurement expedition was as much a moral quest as it was a scientific one, and by his own standards, he had failed. His mission to rectify his failures led him back to Spain, but by this time the provisional calculations had already been used to cast the meter stick back in Paris at the academy. 
While back in the Spanish territories, he lamented to a friend, quote, Never have I found myself in a situation so hopeless, so terrifying, so wrenching. This dreadful commission, whose success appears so far off and so improbable, will more than likely be the end of me. And indeed it was. While searching for the heart of his errors, Michan contracted yellow fever and perished from it. Alder's book is, in some ways, a meditation on the haunting of an error for both Michan and his expeditionary partner Jean-Baptiste Delambre, who made a great effort to hide Michan's errors from the archives and from his records. It is a sad tale, but it's also one of facing insurmountable odds, with an admirable passion and a dedication to precision, guided by an unquenchable utopianism. Michan's error, compounded by errors made by the extrapolations back in Paris, meant that the meter bar set by the academy was not exactly to the one ten millionth of the distance between the equator and the North Pole. The final measurement of the meter ended up being off by about 0.2 millimeters, the width of two sheets of paper. But this was, and has been, the basis for our meter from and since then founding the standard for much of the world's measurements of both distance and weight. Although it consumed him for the remainder of his life, Michan's error has been eclipsed by the legacy of the meter. In fact, it never really ended up mattering that much anyway. Even though the length of the meter is no longer based on the surface of the Earth, those numbers sent back to Paris became the standard by which all other measurements of the meter have been founded. And although the convention ended up being just as arbitrary as anything else, it became durable through a series of treaties and a new vision of internationalism that swept continental Europe after the revolution. Erroneous or not, Michan and Delambre's calculations have formed the basis of how we've been dividing up our world for over 225 years. It's an enduring legacy that I think both would have been honored to be known for. So here again, we have a tale that blurs the lines between the large and the small somewhere between the fractions of a millimeter and the fractions of a planet, between seven years and over two centuries, between three strides lengths and the distance between the stars. Scale and scales are confounding in this way, bringing together concepts and ideas that at once threaten to multiply into infinite complexity at the same time as they collapse into simplified commonalities. Some people tend to think that scale can be a tool to help us bridge that strange space between the simple and the complex. But I find it equally striking, and maybe more inviting and more moving, to be taken in by scale's wonder, by its paradoxes, by the inexplicability of scales and scaling. It reminds us that things are often much more than what they seem. The tiny starling, the swarming locust, the simple harmony or the tape measure. In these things, I think, are the delightful mysteries and joys of complexity and scale. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this longer foray into scales as our theme. It was a great joy and a challenge to tackle this tough topic. Thanks so much to Liam Maloney for his generous time, feedback, and for letting us use and highlight his Musica Universalis piece. If you want to listen to the full track, you can find and download it on Bandcamp and YouTube. Just search for him on Google, or you can find the link in our episode's description. Thanks again to Julianne Yip, Olivier Bollinger, Kristen Flemens, and Baptiste Jeunot for the ideas, inspiration, and patience in collaboration. 
Please subscribe and give us a rating over on iTunes. It really helps us get the word out and grow the podcast. We'd also love to hear from you. You can email us at podcastperiscope, that's one word, podcastperiscope at gmail.com. Or tweet at us at periscopepod, that's again one word, periscope, P-O-D. Thanks to Blue Note Sessions, Kai Engel, and Atrium Carceri for use of their music, all of which is done under Creative Commons and Fair Use Licensing. Stay tuned, we've got a lot more in store for you, including new pings and episodes throughout the spring season. But until then, be well and stay curious.